0: Have you ever read anything that caught you off guard, you know? Kind of kind of stopped you a little bit and made you go, "Whoa, what is that?" I had a moment like that 13 days ago, and this is what I read. What would happen to a congregation if a pastor with all earnestness and gravity and love and joy would begin his Easter sermon with all those guests present, not with a joke or a cute story, but with the words of John Don to his congregation on Easter Sunday morning. Now who's John Don? Well he was an English poet and minister in the late fifteen hundreds and early sixteen hundreds. And one Easter he got up in front of his church and this is what he said. What see could furnish my eyes with tears enough to pour out if I should think that of all this congregation which looks me in the face now I should not meet one at the resurrection at the right hand of God what does that sound like in 2018 in 2018 it might sound more like this it would be like him standing in front of the congregation saying, what if every person looking at me right now was lost and damned to hell? What ocean could hold my tears? Lost and damned to hell. Nothing says happy Easter like that, right? You know, we, we live in a culture, a nation really, for At least the last 75 years, probably longer, but at least the last 75 years, our our nation has become fixated on being amused and entertained. From radio to TV to smartphones, we're we're just addicted to wanting to have a a daily dose of just trivial information and sometimes completely useless information. And look, I'm, I'm at the head of the table on this one, all right? I mean, I am the crown prince of the Democratic Republic of Unnecessary. I mean, my mind is full of complete and total useless yet interesting information. Yeah. At least that's what I always tell my sister-in-law. Yeah, we, we are full of just trivial, banal information. And here's the problem with that, though. See, all of that amusement, in some measure, it has always spilled over into the life of the church. You see, our desire to be entertained, our desire for news, our desire for information, our desire for kitten memes, I mean, these things, they become who we are and and our minds are full of those things. And then we come into church and it takes us like 30 minutes before we can kind of move into a position where our minds are able to start engaging in the dangers of hell and engaging in the beauty of heaven. See, we're slow to get into worship because we have so much useless information in our minds. For that matter, even sometimes useful information in our minds. John Piper says this, It's almost impossible to walk into a worship service and suddenly switch off a whole lifestyle of silliness and try to become a reverent person before an all-holy God when everything else in life has been training us to be glib and trite and superficial. It's not Easter, but with a desire to move us from glib to glory— I just simply ask, are you aware or are you a stranger to the danger of hell? Mark chapter 9, this is what Jesus said. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Jesus goes on, verse 47 and 48. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's why we go to Holland Avenue. They're so positive and encouraging. Here's the thing, though. Our church would hate you. And we would hate this community if we didn't at the very least proclaim the clear message that Jesus gives about hell. He's not confusing in what he discusses. He's not confusing in his language. He's strong and he's clear. So are you a stranger to the danger of hell? If so, then we want you to know that that first song comes with a promise. That danger can change. See, Jesus Christ substituted himself for the just and right penalty of your sin so that you might be rescued from the danger of hell, so that you might have new life, you might have a new name, you might be a child of God. And so if you have never repented of your sin, we plead for you to run from the danger and run to Christ today, to be saved and to know Him as your Savior. Or maybe you're thinking, "Ah, I'm not a stranger to the danger of hell. I got it. I I understand. I, I know a little bit about hell. Then maybe you might be a stranger to something else. There might be something else strange in your life and maybe you didn't even know it. One day Jesus was teaching a crowd of people. He was telling him a story about a father and his two sons. The younger son came to the father and demanded his inheritance early, and he took the money and he ran off to a far land, and boy, he lived it up. Just a wild, rich, extravagant life. So wild, so extravagant, so foolish that he blew through his money in a short amount of time. He was broke, he was desperate, he had nowhere to go except one place. See, when he got to the bottom, when he got into his darkest moment, He knew the only thing he could do was hang his head and go back home. But home was not going to be a a fantastic place. The, The folks back home weren't going to welcome him. See, in demanding his inheritance early culturally, he dishonored his father. He dishonored his family. But he really dishonored the whole community. So they were more likely to strike him on the head with stones than they were to strike up the band and welcome him home. But something amazing happened. He got near the gate of the village and this man was running at him full speed. And he got to him and he just grabbed him and he hugged him and he welcomed him home. And that man was his father. The man that he had dishonored and disobeyed and disowned that man came running to him to grab him in a bear hug and welcome him home and then he turned to his workers and he said look let's get this thing together fast we need to have a celebration we need to have a party and so there was music and there was dancing there was a huge barbecue pit potato salad banana pudding boy everybody was celebrating everybody but one person See, there was another son, an older son. He had been out in the field working. He came back closer to the house. He heard all this commotion. And then he found out that there was this huge party, and the party was for his wild, immoral little brother. And he got angry. He didn't celebrate. He got angry. He got mad, and he sat out on the front porch and pouted. His dad heard about it. Heard he was out on the porch. He went out there and he, he pleaded with him, son, please come in. Come in and celebrate. This is, this is not for your brother. This is for our whole family. Come on, let's, let's celebrate together. And this is how his older son responded. Luke 15 verse 29. Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet, you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He sounds super happy that his brother's home, right? (laughs) Look, old man, are you kidding me? I slave all these years for you. I work hard for you. I honor you. I respect you. And, and this son of yours, he comes home after blowing your money, living a wild life of sin, and you throw a party for him? You didn't even let me have a goat when my friends came over and, and we watched the fighting camels in the championship game. You, you didn't even let us party at all. For that fact, Dad, you've never thrown me a party. Never. For my birthday, I just got a Super bass I mean, for, for Christmas, you know, I, all I got was that, you know, carbon steel slingshot. For Easter, I, that box of dark chocolate tilapia. I mean, that's it. That's all you gave me. I didn't get no party. And yet, here, here's this son of yours, this wild, immoral son. He comes home, and he gets your best barbecue. He gets the brisket and all the Duke's mayonnaise. Are you kidding me, Dad? In the world, you did all of that for him. That's the part I want us to focus in on, just those last two words. You gave the fattened calf for him. How could you do that for him? I can't believe you did that for him. You ever said anything like that? I can't believe she won the pageant. I can't believe he got to start the game. I can't believe he asked her to the dance. What? I can't believe they asked him to be a supervisor. I can't believe she won Carline Mom of the Year. This is so unfair. Those all sound like classic cases of jealousy, right? But technically, they aren't. You see, jealousy can actually be a good thing. Jerry Bridges defined jealousy this way. It is an intolerance of rivalry. Who should have a healthy intolerance of rivalry? I'll give you somebody, a husband and a wife. Christina Fox writes, A common reason for jealousy might be if someone were to try and win your spouse's affections. This type of jealousy is right. A husband and wife ought to protect their marriage from intruders. So jealousy, generally speaking, is kind of connected to things that you already have. You're you're jealous for something that's kind of already yours. But the older brother, he didn't have a fattened calf, did he? No, in his mind, his brother had the fattened calf. He didn't get it. His brother had it. And so what he has is not jealousy. He has envy. Envy. Envy is when you are mad or angry or sad or unhappy when something good happens to somebody else. Or you're mad or angry or sad or unhappy when when someone else has an advantage that you don't have. When the older brother says, for him, he's displaying an attitude of envy. He's envious. Maybe he was envious that his brother got to go live the wild life. Maybe he had been thinking the exact same thing. He wanted to do something like that, but he was just too moral. He was too responsible to ever give in to those feelings. Or maybe, maybe he was just envious of the brisket, right? I mean, he's thinking, man, I've worked all these years and I've never even had a bologna and cheese party. And yet my wild brother comes home and he gets the best barbecue my dad has. He had some envy. you might say, well, what's the big deal? Envy, jealousy, they're, they're about the same. And, and even if they're different, I mean, is envy really that bad? Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? The weight of envy is so strong and so deep you will not survive its impact. Let me repeat that. The weight and the strength and the depth of envy is such that you will not survive its impact. (laughs) What does that mean, survive? Well, Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that envy will cause you to die young. No, you can be pathologically envious of everybody at school when you're growing up. You can be pathologically envious of everybody at work, pathologically envious of everybody in the neighborhood, envious of just about anybody anywhere that you go, and still stand on your own, live your life pretty much however you want to, and live well into your 90s. So envy and not surviving envy doesn't mean that you're going to die young. It just means this, that the impact of unrepentant envy, it will catch up with you. It will. Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Galatia, he gave him a, a list of things that kind of marks, kind of habits that, that mark people who are, are not following Jesus. In that list were things like this, adultery, sexual immorality, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, strife, murders, drunkenness. And in the middle of that list, he also wrote the word envying. (laughs) He put envy in that list with murder and witchcraft and idolatry and adultery. And then he wrote this, Galatians 5.21. As I have also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, you won't survive envy. You won't. Not according to how everything in the Bible speaks about it. Envy is something we have to run from fast. We can't let it take over. In fact, the way Paul uses his language, if the pattern of your life is to consistently be mad or sad or angry, unhappy when good things happen to other people, then you may be in grave danger. The kingdom of God may not be in your GPS. Envy is kind of a big deal. It's not a small thing. Remember, Jesus is telling the story to a crowd of people. And in this crowd, there are people who are just like this older brother. They are moral. They are responsible. They're respectable. And they're religious. They are also the kind of people who consistently are not happy when good things happen to other people. They especially don't like when good things happen to sinful people who turn from their sin. I read a story the other day that just because of the context and what I know about the story, I'm just going to take a guess. It's probably from about maybe 40 years ago. And more than likely, it is about a husband and wife right here in South Carolina. And the story is, is that the wife was just a a faithful, sweet Christian. And the husband was not a Christian, and he was not a faithful husband. For 20 years, the, the relationship went on like this, the wife patient with his immorality. She was heavily plugged in to her church. She was there every time the doors were open. She volunteered all over the place. The people at the church, they knew what her husband was like, and and they watched her, and they saw her faith. They saw her patience and her endurance, and, and it just caused them to respect her all the more. But then something happened. After 20 years, the husband became convicted of his sin. He became broken over his sin. He repented and God saved him. He truly became a Christian. He started going to church with his wife and the people in the church, they they were amazed. They, They were rejoicing over his life because they knew how lost he was and they knew how found he had become. His heart had changed. And something happened to the heart of his wife, too. It got hard. She refused to forgive him. In a short amount of time, she left him, she left the church, and not long after that, she abandoned God and Christianity altogether. Why? Lig Duncan writes, I wonder if all those years when she was the victim and when she was the recipient of the esteem of the congregation who appreciated her long-suffering staying with a husband, I wonder if it built in her heart a sense that she had earned God's love. And it seemed to her fundamentally unfair that a person like her husband should be forgiven and welcomed home like a prodigal, and it was too much for her. He goes on. I don't know. I don't know her heart, but I do know this. When someone has wronged you deeply, it can be very difficult. (laughs) That's an understatement, right? He goes on. It can be very difficult to see them repent and be restored and to rejoice with them because in those moments, we ourselves feel like they don't deserve the grace that God Has shown them. Ever been there? Are are you there now in a relationship? You see, you may not be a stranger to hell. Maybe you're Baptist enough, or Methodist enough, or Presbyterian enough, or religious enough that that you believe in hell and you believe in the concept of hell, but you could be a stranger to grace. You could be a, a stranger to grace. See, grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Grace is when God is patient, and He's kind, and He's merciful, when He has every right to go ahead and initiate the penalty of our sin for rebelling against Him. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And in that crowd of people that Jesus was teaching, there were some people who were strangers to grace. The older brother, he was a stranger to grace. This wife, she was a stranger to grace. Does that mean that her hurt and her pain, that, that it, they didn't matter? No, they mattered greatly. It, it just means that just like the older brother, she couldn't see that she was a prodigal too. You see, you don't have to live a wild life to be a prodigal. Last week, I rode by the, the spot where God saved me. Some people can't remember the, the date and the time and the place of when they got saved, and, and that's okay, okay. Don't let anybody tell you different. Know? You're not going to hell if you can't remember you know, what shirt you were wearing you know, when you came to Jesus. Okay? But I, I just kind of happened to, to know, because I, I remember what was going on. I was walking down Oak by myself. And I I just stopped in my tracks as an 11-year-old and I just begged God to save me. See, I was a pretty good kid, you know, went to church, went to Mission Friends, went to RAs, I was in the children's choir. My dad had been a deacon, my mom was a Sunday school teacher, my brother-in-law was in seminary, he's gonna be a pastor. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm a Christian and I'm thinking, I'm good, everything's fine. But God in his rich an abundant grace, showed me that day on that road that I was a good church-going prodigal, but I was dead in my sin, and I needed grace. And after that day, I have never been a stranger to grace. Well, I probably have had moments where I've puffed up with pride or, or lived in sin and wasn't paying attention to grace, but But in terms of the content of my heart and my soul, I'm no longer a stranger to grace. Why? Well, because from that moment on, I've never had a reason to sit on the porch and be angry because I wasn't getting my way. See, the math of my life changed in that moment. How did the math change? This is what Paul said told the fir- folks over at Philippi, Philippians 3:8, "I count all things, anything you can imagine, anything that you own, anything that you've accomplished. I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you are a believer. There is absolutely nothing that anyone has that you could ever envy. (laughs) I mean, really, this math is not hard. Christians of all people, it's dumb for us to envy because we have the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. I mean, really think through this. I mean, is a, is a prom date better than Jesus? Is a promotion better than Jesus? Is a new smartphone better than Jesus? Is a new job better than Jesus? Is the latest concert tour better than Jesus? Is a clean bill of health better than Jesus? Is a clean path to retirement better than Jesus? If you are a believer, you will not get what you deserve. Why? Because Jesus has substituted himself for you. On the cross, that you might be saved and redeemed, that your name might be changed, that you might be a part of the family of God. That is grace. You get what you don't deserve through Jesus. If you have the grace of Jesus, then there is absolutely nothing in the universe that you could possibly envy. Why? Because in Jesus, you have the greatest treasure in the universe. In Jesus, we have everything, it is surpassing value. Take the worst moment of your life, the surpassing value of Jesus is greater. Take the best moment of your life, the surpassing value of Jesus is greater. It's who he is, it's his character. It's what we have in him. The older brother, he sat out on the front porch and he just pouted in anger because his heart, his soul, his mind was full of envy. He was a stranger to grace. Philip Yancey wrote about a British conference of comparative religions. Some of the the brightest minds in the world were at this conference and they were discussing all the different world religions and they were trying to determine and debate and discuss what every religion contributed to religion in general in the world. And they got to Christianity and They started thinking, well, what has Christianity contributed to the world? They said, is is it incarnation? Well, no, because there's other religions that claim that their gods have come to earth and been humans. Is it resurrection? Well, no, they said, because there's other religions that have claimed that their deities have come back to life. And so they kept discussing, they kept debating, and and after a while, C.S. Lewis came into the room And he asked them what the ruckus was all about. And they said, well, we're trying to figure out, you know, if Christianity has really had any contribution to religion in the world. And with no hesitancy, C.S. Lewis said this. Oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. But that's the contribution. Philip Yancey goes on. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. And then he says this, only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Unconditional. And all of that unconditional love comes in and through and only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. We have no reason to envy anything if we have Jesus because Jesus is the treasure of all treasures. The elder son, he sat on the porch pouting because he was a stranger to grace. And friend, if we don't watch it, we can sit on the porch pouting because we are a stranger to grace. We can see God do amazing things in the lives of others. And we can think, well, they got to earn their stripes at church First. We can see God doing amazing things in the lives of others we can go, yeah, I'll I'll see it when the proof's in the pudding. And and do we have to watch at times? Yeah, we do. But oh, let's let's be quick with grace and, and mingle it with discernment. But let's don't throw discernment in and throw grace out. See, we have no reason to envy the work of God in someone's life that we don't understand if God has worked in our life. I saw a quote from a woman maybe about a decade ago. I I don't know who it was and I've never found out, but this is what she said. Years ago, I stopped looking to anyone but God to satisfy me. There is no man that can love me enough, no child that can need me enough, No job that can pay me enough and no experience that can satisfy me enough. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. The angry elder brother on the porch, he just needed Jesus. The wild, immoral son, he just needed Jesus. Faithful parents and spouses, they just need Jesus. And friend, although everything will tell you this afternoon or maybe starting tomorrow that you need something else, for the glory of God and for the good of your soul, I will just graciously say to you, the only thing you need is Jesus.